All right, let me begin tonight by returning briefly to chapter 1, verses 19 to 51, in order to demonstrate my justification for the divisions of the four pericopes in that section. I failed to do this last week, and I need to point out the method to my madness. I have suggested Act 1, Scene 1 consists of verses 19 to 28. Here's why. Verse 28, John the Baptist is described as being in Bethany beyond the Jordan when the events commencing at verse 19 are narrated. When the Jews from Jerusalem come to him, he is in Bethany beyond the Jordan in verse 19. And when this narrative unit closes, he is in Bethany beyond the Jordan in verse 28. We have an inclusio of location beginning and ending this incident Act 1, Scene 1, on location at Bethany beyond the Jordan. Verse 29 shifts the scene the next day. So we are in the same location but on a different day. This is a narrative shift, and it is marked by John the Baptist's proclamation, Behold the Lamb of God. Act 1, scene 2, is signaled by Jesus' approach and John's testimony to him as God's final sacrificial sin offering. Verse 36 replays verse 29, at least the Baptist's declaration, Behold the Lamb of God. We have an inclusio of proclamation bracketing this narrative unit. In fact, it is possible to see a double inclusio in this pericope, verses 29 to 36, the next day, followed by Behold the Lamb of God, verse 29, the next day, verse 35, followed by Behold the Lamb of God, verse 36. Verse 37 contains the shift to disciples following Jesus. In fact, two scenes of two disciples following Jesus. Scene 1 of Act 2, Andrew and Peter. Scene 2 of Act 2, Philip and Nathaniel. You will notice that central to the two call narratives is the phrase, we have found him, verse 41 and verse 45. Eureka, actually a form of that Greek verb occurs here. We have found the Messiah. We have found the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Notice also that each of these scenes, verses 37 to 42, verses 43 to 51, contain the same invitation, come and see, verse 39 and verse 46. Each scene in this act dealing with the calling of the disciples as the new Israel, details two disciples' names, Andrew and Peter, scene one, Philip and Nathaniel, scene two. In each scene, come and see is emphasized. In each scene, Jesus is found as fulfilling fulfilling an Old Testament Christological title. Therefore, it seems to me that the four subunits possess an integrity of their own, and hence my justification for my outline. The eerie strain of quiet strings mimics a gentle snowfall, cold, 
death still, hushed. The musical camera pans the white-breasted landscape only to be arrested by the movement, the still silent movement of bodies, dozens, hundreds of bodies, walking, trampling, marching across the snow to a palace. And as they approach, the music ascends in crescendos to clash, a crisis of the meeting of bodies, of forces on the snow plain in front of the palace. The feverish beat of the snare drum calls the opposite body, a body of soldiers, to arms before the advance of the approaching body, a body of peasants. And as the music imitating the two masses crashes in a burst of fury, we hear the equivalent of gunshots, and an explosion of death rips the silence. In the frenzy of the carnage, the body of peasants is stopped by death, by blood, by hysterical retreat. And as the music concludes, the eerie snow plain in front of the palace lies spattered with blood, dotted with lifeless bodies, despoiled by the tracks of the frantic stampede to escape. Only the sound of the toxin breaks the eerie silence on that snowy field of blood. Only the sound of the church bell signals the future. Dmitry Shostakovich has told the story of the massacre of the peasants outside the palace of the Tsar in January 1905 exactly 100 years ago this month. It is found in his brilliant 11th symphony, labeled the year 1905. This masterpiece of musical expression paints a portrait of the clash scene by scene, and he does it in a way which cannot be forgotten. What is even more remarkable about Shostakovich's musical portrait in his 11th symphony is the year in which he composed it, 1956. 1956, the year Khrushchev's tanks rolled into Hungary and smashed the freedom-loving Hungarian freedom fighters. 20,000. 20,000 Hungarians were killed by those Soviet tanks and troops. And the blood of the Magyars, the blood of the Magyar peasants, flowed in the streets of Budapest in front of the communist commissars. Dmitry Shostakovich's 11th symphony was his musical testimony to the ruthless Soviet empire, the evil Soviet empire his testimony that they were no better than the Tsar's troops of 1905. It was the same gang of thugs, only in 1956 the name was Nikita Khrushchev, not Nicholas Romanov. Shostakovich's 11th symphony tells a story. John's second chapter tells a story. He alone tells the story. No other evangelist tells the story he tells. We must ask, 
why, even as Shostakovich's symphony forces us to ask why. The answer will provide a key to John's drama of the story of Jesus. We come then to chapter 2 and the wedding at Cana in Galilee. It is necessary to determine the point of this passage in order to apply it properly to the audience. So I want you to notice that in the first place, John 2, 1 to 11 is a text instructing us in proper etiquette, what I call the mismanners application of this text. When you get married, you must send out invitations. Jesus was invited to this wedding, and so the relevant application is an increase in Hallmark's business or the business of your local graphic artist. Oh, you don't like that application for today from the Bible? Well, let's try the second obvious application of the passage. When you plan your wedding, make sure you have some reserves. This is what I call the competent caterer application of the text. You don't want to run out of refreshments at your wedding reception like the folks in John 2. So like good Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, be prepared. Oh, you don't like that application either? Well, then let's try this. Don't plan your wedding without inviting Jesus to attend. Now, surely, surely the reason John 2, 1 to 11 is in the Bible is to teach us to invite Jesus to our wedding. Now, I'm sure that that's the most correct application because that's nearly every application that you get from the average evangelical and reformed pulpit. Alas, none of these applications are correct. Sorry to say, no, they're not, because they have begun outside the text. They've begun with the need for invitations, the need for enough food and drink, the need to have Jesus at your wedding. They've begun with a human need and read that need back on to the text. They've imposed their need on the story that John tells. They've reduced the wedding at Cana to an anthropocentric, man-centered need fulfillment. John did not record this story so preachers can instruct congregations in manners, in hospitality, in sentiment. Don't leave Jesus off your guest list. John records this story for theocentric, Christocentric, soteric, eschatological biblical theological reasons. John doesn't begin with the felt needs of the congregation. He begins with the glory of Christ. Look what he says in verse 11. He tells you why he put it in here. You invite Jesus to your wedding, better Jesus invite you to his wedding. There, you too will behold his glory. Now, maybe that's the reason it's in the Bible. Well, the miracle at Cana is one of two narrative pericopes in this second chapter. You'll notice the wedding at Cana is the first, and the cleansing of the temple was the second narrative in this chapter. Now, you have in your handout a sheet which allows you to see both the macro structure and the micro structure of John 2 to 4, 
and John 2 itself. The macro structure is the larger narrative pattern where you notice John 2 begins at Cana of Galilee and John 4 ends at Cana of Galilee. I will not say any more about that this evening. At this point, I just want you to note that we have an inclusio bracketing 2, 3, and 4 of John's gospel. Now, the smaller inclusio in John 2 is between verses 1 and 11. Notice exactly the same parallel. The Greek is a duplicate in Cana of Galilee. And then in verses 13 and 23, the term Jerusalem at the Passover. Now, those clues are limiters. They are markers. They indicate that we have narrative units. So we have an inclusio of location in Cana of Galilee, first narrative pericope, pericope John 1 to 11. We have an inclusio of location and occasion, Jerusalem at the Passover in uh, verses 13 and 23. Now notice in verse 12 we move from Cana in a change of vector where Jesus goes down, Catabe to Capernaum. Then in verse 13 we move from Capernaum with a change of vector, Jesus goes up, Anabe, to Jerusalem. Verse 12, then, is a structural break between the two narratives. <clears throat> we have, as it were, <clears throat> a uh, horizontal plane narrative. That is, Jesus in the same location, 1 to 11. Then he goes down in verse 12, from which he goes up in verses 13 through 23 to uh, <clears throat> be involved in another horizontal plane narrative. Now, that 12th verse has been described as a bridge Point, a bridge unit. Malak Huzil, whose book is the text for this course, argues that it is a bridge uh, portion. Uh, I regard it as a transitional device, and I want you to notice what happens. As uh, we look ahead to uh, the, the next pericopes in the Gospel of John, as we look ahead to the Nicodemus story in chapter 3, uh, we once again have a break. We have a break between the end of the cleansing of the temple narrative and the beginning of the Nicodemus narrative. We have verses 24 and 25. So here's the paradigm. Verses 1 to 11, narrative. Verse 12, break. Verses 13 to 23, narrative. Verses 24 to 25, break. Chapter 3, narrative. We have a pattern that John is tracing. It is a sequential pattern. And therefore, verses 12 and 24 to 25 are more than bridging devices. They're actually transitional devices. Notice something else. In verse 11, John tells us that the disciples believed. Then in verse 12, he tells us that the disciples remained or abide with Jesus. In verse 22, he tells us the disciples believed. In verse 23, he tells us that the crowds believed, but Jesus did not believe on them. Now, that's an ironic use of the Greek verb pistuo, where Jesus does not entrust himself or does not believe on them. He does not commend or confide himself in them. In other words, Jesus does not abide with them, with this crowd in verse 23. 
Notice the contrast. His disciples believe and abide. Jesus reciprocates. He abides with them. The crowds believe, you have to put it in ironic quotes, but Jesus does not reciprocate. He does not abide. He does not entrust himself to them. That's a Johannine irony. That's an ironic twist on faith and faith, believing and believing. There are two kinds of faith. There are two kinds of faith in Christ's miracles. There is the faith that beholds his miracles and sees his glory in them, verse 11. But there is the faith that beholds his miracles and only sees the miracles, verse 23. Genuine faith does not focus on the miracle. Genuine faith focuses on Jesus. Counterfeit faith focuses on the wonder, the wondrous phenomena, not on Jesus. And it's the same problem. Now, there are theological issues here, and you have my little uh, article on understanding the miracles of Jesus. We have the theology of miracle, and we have the theology of the temple in this second chapter. More significantly, we have the theology of fulfillment. Will you notice only John has this miracle at Cana, and only John has the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of his gospel. And he puts these two narratives back to back. Hmm. John seems to see a unifying theological theme in these two pericopes. Well, let's explore that theme as we explore the two pericopes. The inclusio, Cana of Galilee, sets the limits. And that forces us inside the limits. In other words, when you have an inclusio, you have to look inside it. Because what the writer is doing is he's focusing you down into the center of his narrative. That's the reason he brackets it with an inclusio. Don't forget that we have a duplicate literary structure here. We have two narratives framed by inclusios. And so we have a very strong suggestion that there is a duplicate biblical theological drama occurring inside the inclusios. The miracle at Cana is labeled the beginning of his miracles, verse 11, or the beginning of his signs. Now, many have observed the contrast between this beginning of miracles in Jesus' case and the first miracle of Moses. First miracle of Moses, turning water into blood, First miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. Miracles of curse and malediction. Moses' miracle of blessing and benediction. Jesus. That redemptive historical juxtaposition is an emphatic emphasis of this story set at the wedding feast. Surely this is a miracle in an arena of joy and benediction. So, the narrative occasion suggests redemptive historic relation between an era which came with the law given through Moses and the era which dawns with grace and truth through Jesus Christ. The biblical theology of the prologue is unfolded here at Cana. Location of the drama, the occasion of the drama, all of them underscore the biblical theology of the drama Jesus is greater than Moses. Look what he brings. Now, this drama has characters. 
You will notice Christ is here, his mother, disciples, bride and the groom, head waiter, the servants. But Christ's mother is rebuked. The disciples aren't even in the story proper. The bride never appears. The bridegroom never speaks. The head waiter is dumbfounded. The central character in the drama is Christ. The drama, the miracle, the miracle drama is Christocentric. John wrote it that way because it happened that way. And the narrative plot of this drama, yes, there's a plot in this little story. It flows from scene, Cana of Galilee, to setting, wedding celebration, to characterization, central character, Jesus, to coherence, he arrives, there's a crisis, he solves the crisis, to affection, affection, how the disciples were affected by the narrative drama of John's or Jesus' display of his supernatural, miraculous power. We have beheld his glory, chapter 2, verse 11, which matches the prologue, chapter 1, verse 14. We have believed on his name, chapter 2, verse 11, matches the prologue, chapter 1, verse 7. And the climax of the affective narrative plot, the best is last, verse 10. At the end of this narrative, the best wine of all, the best wine which comes now. Notice that word in verse 10. The now time is the time of the arrival of the best wine. The unfolding of this small drama places the best at the climax. The end of the story is better than the beginning of the story. Now, the miracle is the central act of the central person in the drama. And the theology of miracles in the New Testament begins with the vocabulary. John uses the word semeon, which means sign. You can see semaphore, the English word semaphore related to it. Sign, a signal sign. The miracles of Jesus in John's gospel are signs. They are semaphores. They are signal flags. They are attracting your attention. Now, John never uses the synoptic term dunamis. Now, that word in Greek means power or might, and you can see the English word dynamite in it. These miracles in the synoptic gospels are explosions. They are eruptions of the might of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. In fact, they are demonstrations of the power of the kingdom of God in history. Miracles as power, mighty deeds mighty acts of God, supernaturally mighty acts of God. Now, John avoids that term, do not miss. He uses the term, semeon, sign, because he is pointing to three signals, a Christological or Christocentric signal for the sign miracles in the fourth gospel are signals of who Jesus is. He signs, he signals that as he does what God does, as he does what God does in changing water into wine, as he does what God does, performs an act of creation, 
He is signing. He is signaling who he is. He is creator. The miracle at Cana is a sign that Jesus is the Lord of creation. Now, the second sign is the soteriological. It is the signal. It is the sign of what Jesus brings. He brings the age, not of water turned into blood, but he brings the age of water turned into wine. Precisely this age was projected. Yes, it was. Precisely this better age was projected in the messianic prophecies of the new creation by the Old Testament prophets. In that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Joel 3.18 The days are coming when mountains will drip sweet wine. Amos 9.13 The Lord will prepare a lavish banquet, a banquet of aged wine, refined aged wine, in that day when it will be said, This is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Isaiah 25, 6 and 9, the prophetic age of salvation associated with the abundant flow of sweet wine, the overabundant flow of well-aged wine, a banquet of sweet, refined wine on the lees has come. Jesus gives a sign, a miracle sign that it has arrived on the day that he turns that water into that wine at Cana of Galilee. This messianic age of the new creation in Christ Jesus has dawned. Jesus gives a sign of its soteriological arrival at Cana. The miracle at Cana is a sign. It is a signal semaphore. Jesus is signing that he is Lord of the new creation. He is Lord of the age of salvation. He is the Lord of the age of blessed wine, not cursed blood. And third, the sign miracles in John's gospel are eschatological signals. They are signals of what is yet to come. They are signs that the best is yet to be. As the best wine at the wedding came at the end of the wedding celebration, the miracle at Cana is a sign of an eschatological wedding, a sign of Jesus' wedding. The miracle at Cana is an eschatological sign of the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that the miracle at Cana signs that Jesus is the Lord of glory. Who he is, Lord of creation, what he brings, Lord of new creation, what is ahead in the future, even now, Lord of glory. This is what the miracle is to you who believe on his name. He is your creation, Lord. He is your new creation, Lord. He is your glory, Lord. He is Jesus, the Lord. The water recognized its creator and blushed. The water recognized its creator and blushed. Richard Crashaw, 1649 poet. What water? 
verse 6. What water? Verse 6. The water in the pots for Jewish purification. Jewish ritual purification. Jesus transforms that water into wine. Jesus replaces that water with wine. Jesus takes the water of the old era and replaces it with the wine of the new era. Jesus replaces, he displaces ritual Judaism with the wine of gospel joy and celebration. And this is no killjoy Jesus, no piker cheapskate Jesus. This Jesus makes 120 to 180 gallons of wine because Jesus wants happy Christians. He wants joyful guests at his wedding. And he gives a superabundance of that best wine. That is what Jesus brings so that you can smile from ear to ear. Smile! Be happy when you come into this church. Jesus is here. He wants no long-faced Pharisees nor stern-faced egomaniacs. Jesus wants people filled to overflowing with joy, with smiles, with the happiness he brings because the age of salvation has come in his glory presence. They can rejoice and smile and be happy with him in that dimension Now and forevermore, the wedding has begun. This first miracle is contained in an inclusio. As I pointed out, it's folded down upon the replacement and displacement that Jesus brings into the history of redemption. He replaces the former Jewish ritualistic era with a new age of salvation and joy. That former era has passed away Jesus has given you a sign that that era is gone. Displaced and replaced by him, the Lord of creation. That era is gone. Displaced and replaced by what he brings as Lord of the new creation. That era is gone. Displaced and replaced by what he portends as Lord of glory. When you and I will sit down to sup with him at last in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, verse 12 begins with a transitional phrase, meta tuto, which in the Greek means after this. John is fond of the plural of this transitional marker, meta tauta, after these things, which he uses in chapter 3, 22, chapter 5, 1 and 14, chapter 6, 1, chapter 7, 1, Chapter 1938, chapter 21, verse 1. He likes to use metatauta after these things. Now, here notice the grammatical sequence. Notice in verse 12, metatuto, after this, then a verb of movement or a verb of journeying. Katabe, he went down, and then the destination, Capernaum. Now, notice verse 13, the verb of movement. Anabe, he went up, and the destination, Jerusalem. The change in directional vectors is parallel in each case. But we also have a light verter. We have a keyword. In verse 12, we have the keyword stayed or remained, emanon. In Greek, 
his mother, brothers, disciples, remain, remain on with him. Those that have seen his glory at Cana and have believed in him, stay with him at Capernaum. The key word is the same as that in chapter 1. Where are you staying? Where are you remaining? Verse 38, chapter 1, ask Andrew and Peter. Come and see, said Jesus. And they stayed and made on with him. Those who follow Jesus remain. They stay with him. They are the new Israel. They are the Israel of God of the end of the age. They have trusted themselves to them because he first trusted himself to them. They remain with him because he first stayed with them. And now the cleansing of the temple. Chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, is a continuation of John's displacement-replacement theology, even as it is an elaboration of John's tabernacle theology. Do you recall last week our discussion of the prologue, chapter 1, verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. The Jerusalem temple replaced the wilderness tabernacle as a permanent settlement replaced a sojourning pilgrimage. A permanent edifice for a people permanently or semi-permanently settled. In the theology of the temple, we once again have the elements of the theology of the tabernacle. The incarnational vector... God comes down to dwell with his people in the temple. The relational vector, God comes down to be their God and to make them his people. The eschatological vector, God invites his people to dwell with him in his eschatological dwelling place, his heavenly dwelling place, eternal in the heavens. Now, Jesus goes up to the third temple in Israel's history. It is the temple built by Herod the Great. Now, I say the third temple, though many of the textbooks talk about second temple Judaism. Let me clarify. The first temple was built by Adam. Date. We're going to have to work on you. Yes, 1 Kings 6 1, the fourth year of the reign of Solomon, which is the 480th year after the Exodus, which gives us the date of the Exodus. Give me the date of the Exodus, Adam. 1447. That's how we date the Exodus. And the fourth year of Solomon is 967. He takes the throne in 971. So the first temple of Solomon built 967. What happened to it, Adam? By whom? King of? Very good. Second temple is? Built by the returned exiles. Date? 516. You got one out of two. Not bad. All right. 516, the return from Babylonian exile, the second temple in the days of Haggai and Zechariah is uh, erected. Now, this temple of Herod is on the site of the second temple but it is an expanded and remodeled version 
as a gift from King Herod to the Jewish nation which he governed. It is really not the second temple because it's a much enlarged and embellished version. Strictly speaking, it's the third temple, though all of the nomenclature says this is the second temple era. So you float with the terminology, but you understand what I mean. Now, Herod's temple complex was a work under construction possibly never, ever completed. The text in verse 20 indicates that on Jesus' appearance, it had been 46 years under construction. Now, we know it was begun about 19 B.C. 46 years would place our narrative at about 27 or 28 A.D. This is one of the benchmark ways of dating the life of Jesus, for incidentally. Now, Herod's gift to the Jewish nation was huge. It is estimated that the temple complex that Herod built was 1.5 million square feet. One and a half million square feet. Do you understand how big that is? That is big enough for 12 soccer fields. That is more than three times longer than a United States football field. It is well over 1,000 feet long and 900 feet wide. It was the largest sacred complex ever built in the ancient world, and it should have been the eighth wonder of the world. It was humongous and never finished. What happened to it, Adam? Date. Person. Titus. Very good. But Jesus brings enacted prophecy to the temple at the inauguration of his Jerusalem ministry. He brings judgment beginning at the house of the Lord. And in that judgment in which he removes what is corrupt and sinful and defiling, he restores, he cleanses, he renews. But this pattern of judgment, destruction, restoration, renewal is far more significant than the non-pacifistic Jesus, the non-Mahatma Gandhi Jesus, whipping, beating, overtoning thieves, robbers, driving them out with a scourge. There's no mamby-pamby Jesus in that portrait. I'm sorry, you pacifists. This pattern of Jesus bringing judgment to the temple, of Jesus bringing restoration to the temple, this pattern is nothing less than death and resurrection. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This temple, Jesus, not that temple, Herod's. This temple crucified and risen, not that temple destroyed and abandoned. This temple alive forevermore, not that temple gone forevermore. Jesus is acting out the end of the temple, the cessation of the temple age. And why is Jesus doing away with the temple? Because he is the eschatological temple. He is the once and for all temple. After him, no more temple, for he is the eternal temple of God. Never ending, never dying, never destroyed, never needing cleansed. Jesus, crucified and risen, is the temple. 
That's what he says in the text. Good enough for Jesus is good enough for me. Do you not see? John places this story in chapter 2 in order to continue his displacement, replacement motif as Jesus replaces the Jewish ritual water at Cana with a new and better age, not ritualistic worship, but the wine of gospel joy, as Jesus replaces and displaces ritualistic, legalistic Jewish purifications, so Jesus displaces and replaces the Jewish temple itself. No more ritualistic and legalistic sacrifices and oblations. No more ceremonial barriers between Jew and Gentile, with the court of the Gentiles shutting them out of close access to the altar and the holy place. No more, said Jesus. No more ceremonial barriers between men and women, with the temple court of the women segregated from the men in the worship of the Lord who made both of them in his own image. No more, said Jesus. No more pilgrimage to only one temple location in the world with all having to go up to Jerusalem below, the Jerusalem below for atonement, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Jesus says, no more. No, that era, that age, the era of that temple age is over, displaced and replaced by me, by a living temple by the final temple in the history of redemption, a temple in which death unto judgment and resurrection unto salvation has been accomplished once and for all. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Jesus says, Jesus says, no more Jerusalem temple. It is over. It is done. It is past I am the temple of God in the midst of men. I am the judgment, death, resurrection, life, paradigm in the flesh. I am what the temple meant. After me, after me, it can mean this no more. Me, not the temple. My death and resurrection, not the blood of bulls and goats. My eschatological sacrifice, not these never-ending sacrifices. Destroy this temple... This temple, that temple is abolished, destroyed, ended. Never to rise again, this temple shall rise. Now we switch gears to the third chapter. In the 16th century particularly in France, some Protestant evangelicals sought to justify their conformity to the Roman Catholic Church by pointing to the figure of Nicodemus. After all, Nicodemus had come to Jesus at night in order to hide his interview with the Son of God from the hostile Sanhedrin. What was justified in Nicodemus in the first century was equally justified in French Reformed Protestants in the 16th century especially when the Roman Catholic Church persecuted Reformed believers in France, these Nicodemites denied that they were sinning when they attended Mass 
and supported Roman Catholic idolatry as long as their minds embraced evangelical religion. John Calvin wrote four tracts against the Nicodemites, arguing that not only was it a dishonor to Nicodemus to dissemble before the Roman Catholic hierarchy, but it was a dishonor to Reformed and Evangelical faith. Said Calvin, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night in the time of his ignorance. After he had been taught, he confessed him openly by day. Calvin was attacked. He was attacked as being too severe, insensitive to the pressures of Protestants in a Roman Catholic country. Calvin responded with the only two alternatives as he saw it, exile or death. Either flee Roman Catholic France for Protestant Switzerland, Holland, or some other country, or be faithful unto death. For death would be more noble than acting as a Catholic publicly while splitting hairs of mental reservation privately. Nicodemus continues to be a figure who stirs controversy. Commentators and scholars alike continue to see him either as a child of the darkness or a son of the light. Let's consider the character of Nicodemus. I am speaking to you about a senior citizen. Curious fellow, this, who came to Jesus one night, out of the darkness he came, came secretly at night when no spying eyes could see. Out of the blackness of his own unbelief he came by night, Nicodemus came in John 3 to see Jesus. Jesus, who had just stunned the crowds by driving the money changers those well-heeled entrepreneurs, out of the temple. Jesus, who had just shocked the religious establishment, those good old boys of the Jewish religious bureaucracy, by claiming to be greater than the temple. I am the temple. Destroy this temple. In three days I will raise it up. This temple am I, where God and man meet. The temple where God condescends to dwell with his people. The temple where God tabernacles in the midst of his pilgrim people. Jesus says, I am. I am where God and man meet. I am Theanthropos. I am God-man. I am the dwelling place of God with his people. I am the tabernacle of God in the flesh. I am the Emmanuel presence in the midst of the pilgrim people of God. Since my resurrection, Jesus says, no more temple. I am the only temple you need. And Nicodemus comes to see this one. Out of the darkness, curious Nicodemus comes to hear Jesus talk of a birth from above. A birth from heaven itself. A birth by the intrusion of the above into the below. A new birth, even for senior citizens. A birth of water and spirit. With the darkness of night outside, Nicodemus listens to Jesus inside talk of the bronze serpent of Moses. As Moses lifted up the serpent, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, 
And Nicodemus, with the black night outside, Nicodemus hears of faith in the one lifted up from the earth, one greater than Moses, one greater than Moses' bronze standard, one who, when he is suspended between earth and sky, will put an end to the sting of sin and the biting curse of death. With the darkness outside, Nicodemus listens, listens, to Jesus' talk of life, not death, faith, not unbelief, eternal life, not perdition and damnation. Curious, Nicodemus comes by night to see Jesus, and he listens. And in this Jesus, he begins to see that God so loved the world. Curious, Nicodemus comes by night, and in this Jesus, he begins to see the light. I am speaking to you of a senior citizen, no longer a curious fellow, now hesitant, a bit nervous and self-conscious, yet even now surprised at his own courage. Nicodemus stands to defend Jesus in John 7, 45-52. Before the council, in front of the Sanhedrin, others are plotting the death of Jesus. He has healed a man on the Sabbath day. He is worthy of death for being merciful to the sick. He has made himself a blasphemer calling God his own father. He is worthy of death for he has made himself equal with God. He has fed thousands with bread and fish laying claim to be the bread out of heaven. He is worthy of death for he says he is living bread and living drink. He has stood up in Jerusalem on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles and shouted, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I will give him rivers of living water. Surely he is worthy of death, for he claims to be greater than Moses, to be himself a fountain of living water for the pilgrim people of God. Arrest him. Put him to death. And Nicodemus screws up his courage and rises to the defense. Curious fellow, this Nicodemus, who came to Jesus first under the cover of darkness, now stands before the Jewish council in broad daylight, to speak for Jesus, to act the advocate on behalf of Jesus, to act that Jesus have the right to due process. Nicodemus, who first came to Jesus seeking light, is now standing to defend the light. This light of the world, whoever follows this one, will not walk in darkness. For Nicodemus, the darkness is disappearing in the face of of the light of the world. Those who believe in him no longer remain in the darkness. I am speaking to you of a senior citizen who comes into the darkness, the approaching darkness of the evening on this Friday, the pitch darkness of a tomb, a sepulcher newly cut out of rock. Nicodemus comes into the darkness that hovers about a cross in John 19, 38 to 42. Dark day, this, this Black Friday. The one whom he sought by night now hangs lifeless on the tree. The one whom he defended by day now slumps from piercing nails. The dusk is gathering. He and his friend Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, must take the body of Jesus from the cross and bury it before night falls, the night 
the night squeezing the light out of the sky. The night, inky night, crowds in upon their work. These two, only these two, these two only, everyone else has fled, everyone else has deserted him. How dark it is. How very dark it is. These two come to attend their Lord. Nicodemus comes with myrrh and aloes, with spices for the burial of his Lord. Like Mary had come with precious ointment to bathe his feet in the gift of her love, Nicodemus comes with lavish spices, hundreds of dollars worth of spices for his dead Lord. Nothing hesitant about his movements, no idle curiosity, no suggestion of timidity. The body of Jesus is lovingly wrapped, gently carried, tenderly laid in the tomb and the stone is rolled over the mouth of the sepulcher, and Jesus is left in the darkness. Jesus is left in the darkness of a grave. Yes, Nicodemus, I must go into the darkness into the black hole of death. I must do this for you, Nicodemus. For you came out of the darkness to find the light. Now I must go back into the darkness for your sake and for the sake of all whom the Father has given unto me. Let not your heart be troubled, Nicodemus. I go to the cross for you. I go to be lifted up from the earth for you. I go to be accursed, to be falsely accused in your place that you may never be condemned. I go to death for you that you may never die. I come to the grave by you that by me you may never remain in the grave. Wait for the third day, Nicodemus. Wait for the first day of the week, Nicodemus. Wait for that blessed Easter morn, Nicodemus. The sun, the sun of righteousness will rise. The light of the world will burst forth. The bright and morning star will shine on the third day, Nicodemus. The light will shine in the darkness, and the darkness will not be able to overcome it. Nicodemus, Out of your fervent devotion, you have wrapped my body for the grave. You have wrapped your soul in that birth from above, that new birth which comes by water flowing from my wounded side and the spirit by which I have been raised up. Nicodemus, out of your profound love and gratitude, you have poured a treasure of spices upon my grave cause, You have treasured this crucified son of man, this bread out of heaven, this light of the world. Nicodemus, on the first day of the week, the darkness will disappear. Nicodemus, when I rise from the grave where you laid me, there will be no more darkness. Dear beloved Nicodemus, I have come to prepare a place for you in a city where there is no more night. 
for in that city they have no need of the light of the sun, nor they do they need a lamp anymore, for the Lamb is the light of that city. Yes, Nicodemus. The darkness has disappeared once and for all. It has been swallowed up in the light. Come, dear beloved Nicodemus, come walk in the light. Come, dear beloved Nicodemus, walk even now in the light of the age to come. And Nicodemus walked once and for all out of the darkness into the everlasting light of his risen Lord, Jesus Christ. That's who Nicodemus is. And John takes you by stages through his story so that you will see no more darkness in Nicodemus on the other side of the resurrection of his dear Lord. All right, we'll take our break now. And I'm not going to answer, answer any questions because I want you to come back in exactly five minutes. And as you're stretching your legs, I'm going to sit down.